Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. Human beings naturally live inside of a circle, and that circle is, this is what you're supposed to think in your culture. This is how you're supposed to behave. There are rules. And that circle existed in ancient Egypt. It didn't have the same things that we have, but it still was a limitation. You're not supposed to think this in ancient Egypt. You're supposed to behave this way. The moment you place limits for the human being, they're fascinated by what lies beyond. It's part of our nature. We like what's supposedly transgressive. We're not supposed to go there. We want to go there. I'm saying that what lies outside that circle is what I call the realm of the sublime. And I want people to begin to think outside of that, to expand their minds, to expand their consciousness, to not live in the sort of narrow little world of your smartphone, of what people are telling you how you're supposed to think and feel, but to expand your mind to other possibilities of looking at the world. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Thank you very much for joining. Today is an absolutely brilliant mind on the show. His name is Robert Green. He's an author. He's written some amazing books. He's written The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, 33 Strategies of War, 50th Law, Mastery, Laws of Human Nature. And the book that I read every morning right now is called The Daily Laws, um, which is more bite-sized, right? So it's a couple paragraphs and then there'll be some lesson at the bottom and something contemplative. So for me, it's a really insightful uh, book to flip through in the morning and read each day because there's, you know, for every day there's a lesson. I mean, in this episode, what you hear is just a contemplative, brilliant mind. We talked about uh, the universe, the Big Bang. We got a little into, you know, extraterrestrial. Of course, I have to throw that in, you know, and we talked about his stroke as well and the effect that his stroke three years ago has had on his life. You know what? You're just going to have to listen. It's totally worth it. Hang in there. It's a just a beautiful, a beautiful outlook of life and so many, so many lessons. Please hit the subscribe button if you like this podcast and you want to keep listening to it and you want notifications. There's, everybody's good at something and it's kind of just about figuring out or do you disagree? No, I agree, but I'm only good at one thing. <laughs> <laughs> what is your definition of the one thing? Well, it's just writing. I can't like sing. I'm totally tone deaf. My dancing sucks. <laughs> I wanted to be a basketball player and I can't make a shot for my life depends on it. All I can do is write. So there you go. <laughs> well, I would say that if yes, clearly you can write, but I would also say that if you can write, you're also um, intellectual, you're a thinker, yeah. you okay. like to philosophize, you're okay. contemplative, like you're, I would say there's got like, I'm sure that you're probably well read on your own. So, you know, maybe the expression of all of that collected energy comes out in books, but look, we're, we're all grateful for that. Well, that's a very nice way of putting it. Thank you. That, that makes it seem more flattering than what I meant, but okay. 
Speaking of books, I have your daily laws book. I love it. It's part of my morning routine. Every day I read, I read the, uh, I read the, what do you call it? Advice, the, the, uh, in, the daily insight, law. the yeah. law. Um, okay. Well then maybe let's start with that. I actually was really curious what your relationship or definition is of law. Cause it's a common word you obviously use with your books and the titles. Well, it's a bit of a literary device. It's not like it's a law of nature. It's not like Einstein's law of relativity. So get that out of the way. It's more kind of, I'm trying to give you a sense that these are things that have deep history behind them, which is why I do a lot of research for my books. So when I wrote my first book, The 48 Laws of Power, which sort of set the tone for all of my books, I read like three, 400 books to do the research. I wanted to give the reader a sense that these are timeless aspects of power that transcend your culture, that transcend your period of time, that they're equally valid for ancient China as they are for 21st century America. So that kind of breadth, I mean, I know it's ambitious, maybe it's even a bit pretentious, but that kind of ambition, I wanted to sort of say, this is a law. It's almost like a law of relativity. So law number one in the 48 laws of power is never outshine the master. If you violate that law, if you're in your, in your work somehow, you make yourself appear better than the person above you, they are going to naturally feel insecure. Their ego will be triggered. Now, maybe there are a few saints out there, like a Gandhi, whom that might not happen to, but it will happen to 98% of the people that, this, that, that are in the situation. And so with that kind of, of logic behind and that kind of history, I think it kind of is something that I can say is a law. Mm-hmm. Why? I, I know you talk about that a lot. There's a lot around mentors and, and people like that. And it's not about outshining. And it's also not about what you can get from them. A lot of times it's having a relationship with what you can offer them and allowing them to shine, uh, expand on that. Like, would you have experience with that directly that uh, initiated that, especially to be the first law? What's this, what's the history of that with you? You know, I had, um, I once counted with my girlfriend, I've had like 60 different jobs in my life prior to writing the 48 Laws of Power, and I've seen every kind of power situation. And maybe about three times in my life, I've actually violated law number one, and I paid a very heavy price for it. So, for instance, I was a researcher on a television show. I'm not going to name tell you the name of that show because it's a little bit embarrassing. But I was a re- researcher on the show. <clears throat> and your job was to find stories that would end up being produced for this, for this program. And I was by far the best researcher there. I was getting like 90% of the stories, even though there was a team of like six or seven researchers. And, um, and then suddenly I found myself being fired. Hmm. What? You know, what was going on? And I was kind of clashing a little bit with my superior because she thought I had a bit of an attitude. And I really didn't have an attitude. I just, I mean, maybe I'm a little bit cocky, I agree. But basically, I had outshone the master. I had made her, it was a woman in this instance, feel insecure, like maybe the people in the, in the company thought that I was better than her or that I could take over her job, which wasn't my intent anyway. But I got fired, and nobody tells you when you're fired for that that you inadvertently tripped up this person's ego because nobody likes to admit that. You're fired for other reasons. You had an attitude. You didn't show up on time, blah, 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 blah. 
The truth is it was about ego, right? You had outshone the master. And when you don't know why you're fired, it's very painful. Yeah. It was very painful to me. It was very emotional. And slowly I kind of figured it out. But it happened in other times as well because I, I, thought, I always thought when you go to work, it's about the quality of the work that matters, not about what, how people feel themselves, whether they feel secure about their position or not. I thought it was just about getting results, but that's not the case. Mm. So it's law number one, because I have had so many people tell me about very painful stories in their life where the same thing has happened. A lot of musicians, very famous people in the rap industry, because I, I have a lot of rappers who, who, who are fans of my books, athletes, etc. It's an incredibly common theme. It goes back to the Bible. It goes back thousands of years. So it's part of human nature, and that's why I made it law number one. Hmm. <clears throat> what do you do if you're... What do you do if you're you going back to that point in time where you were, it sounds like overqualified for the position, um, or uh, exceeding uh, all the other talent, including the boss? What do you do in that scenario? Well, that's a great question. And that's what I talk about in the, in the book. So you have to be careful. You have to be aware of this. So I tell people, you assume that the person above you, your boss, and we all have bosses, no matter if you're the president of the United States, you assume that this person, because they've reached this position, they don't have insecurities. They must be very powerful and very confident because that's what goes with being a leader. But it's actually the opposite. The higher up you go, the more insecure you become. You don't think that people are, are giving you the respect that you deserve. You're extremely attuned to how people are judging you or looking at you, right? And so you inadvertently trip up their insecurities by assuming that they don't have any insecurities, right? So the first thing is to be aware that it's a human being that is your boss. It's not like some machine. And they're just like any other human being. They have an ego. They have insecurities. They have all these other kind of flaws in their character. So first be aware of that. And then find ways to kind of diffuse it. Perhaps in that situation with that woman, I could have been less cocky. I could have been a little less arrogant. I could have said, you know, I didn't really um, find these stories. You know, I really, it's your help and your mentoring me that led me to them. There were ways to give them credit. So you kind of diffuse it. It doesn't mean that I have to start doing a bad job. I never advocate that. Mm -hmm. But there are always ways to make the other person feel secure about them. Sometimes that might involve a little bit of a white lie. But sometimes it's the truth, you know. She did help me at one point. She did. She did give me some good advice. I could have done handled the situation better. I want you to get people out of the idea that it's always the other person that's to blame for the problems that happen in your life. You are often responsible for things that happen. Like I was responsible in that situation. And if you look at it that way, and you go, "What did I do in that situation that was wrong? What can I correct?" That gives you power. If you assume oh, she was just evil, she was just, you know, something's wrong with her, then I just have no power in that situation. I'm just a victim. But I can see what I did that was wrong, and suddenly I can correct that. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had that happen to you? Yeah, not probably in a job. I have had quite a unique sort of job trajectory. I sort of self-employed, but also like I was kind of always the point person being a race car driver. Like it was up to me to be taking charge. 
Um, but but did, some, did some people resent your success and think um, that you hadn't earned it, that you that you were kind of outshining some of the Yeah, actually, older... that, that probably was the case early on in my IndyCar career. People were a little bit offended with all the attention. And, yeah. um, and so I've also probably experienced it the other way where someone comes in and they try to sort of like, out cool you or outshine you in some way and you're like look bag it down kid you know exactly um so yeah i think that's putting thought to it yeah you're right that is a common experience but i think that the thing that you said right at the end that is something that i think we should talk about is this blame game that we play all the time uh or most of the time and most people and i'm totally guilty of it i'm sure everybody is at least on a regular basis until there becomes some sort of like shift or a, a awakening within you that, wow, everywhere I go with problems, there I am. Um, so what is it that makes us? When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12 ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Like that. Why do we blame people? Why do we, why? I mean, I think about attitude. That's a lot of the, you know, you talk about attitude a lot. What, um, what is the, what is the source of that blame game we play in our lives? Well, it goes very deep into human nature right because the feeling that um i am to blame causes all kinds of self-reflections like mm-hmm. what are what is it about me that's wrong is there something essentially wrong with me mm-hmm. so it's much easier to focus outward we're not designed by our, the way our brains are, are are created or or wired which is something i'm going into for my next book we're not wired to reflect on ourselves, to reflect on the brain itself to reflect on our own functioning to reflect on our own emotions. Hmm. If you study neuroscience, our emotions are actually disguised from us. We don't see the source of them. We may see the source of a thought sometimes, but we never see the source of our emotions. Like, where does my anger really come from? So instead of focusing inward on my anger really comes from something in my childhood or from something that happened a couple of days ago, somebody said something, we're going to focus on the thing in front of us that person said something, they made me angry. They made me angry. Not I'm feeling the anger, right? Yeah. So we're wired to continually look outward and see other people as responsible for it. And so I wrote a book called The Laws of Human Nature, which is my sixth book. And it's kind of long. It's, you know, I hate to say it, it's like 160 pages long. I don't want to discourage people from reading it, but I'm being honest. <laughs> but I have like 18 laws in there 
about human nature and the kind of negative qualities that we all can have. Mm-hmm. Narcissism, irrationality, envy, grandiosity, aggression, on and on and on. And the point that I make in the book is our tendency as human beings is to always think that the other person has these qualities. They're a narcissist, right? She's full of envy. He's aggressive. But we never go, maybe I'm a narcissist. Maybe I have narcissistic tendencies, right? And I make the point in the book that you are a human being, that you were born with the same brain that everybody else is born with. There are very few differences between one human to another in the brain functioning. Mm. And so to assume that you aren't narcissistic is absurd. It's wired into our nature to be self-absorbed. We're all self-absorbed, including myself. Mm. And when I wrote the book, it was kind of painful for me to realize, Robert, you actually are quite narcissistic. But it's not natural for us to think that way. We want to always want to point fingers at other people because that's so much easier. And, And we're creatures that like the easy way out. I, I have a theory and that's human nature is to do the minimum and everyone's minimum's different. You know, my dad was pretty tough on me and, you know, my minimum was different than someone else who maybe didn't get grounded for something and, you know, but right. human nature is to do the minimum, which is why I feel like you see like, you know, second and third generation kids within wealthy families, like the minimum gets pretty low. Like there's a lot, there's, there's, you don't have to make make it yourself. There's a fallback. This is definitely part of the human condition to um, to uh, deflect and and protect ourselves. Like I think that's kind of you know the ego coming in again to negate against pain. Um, are you saying that there's an aspect of narcissism within everyone? An aspect of a monster within everyone, an aspect of jealousy. Are you saying all we hold all of these aspects? It's just what we put our what makes what makes someone have more narcissism or more anger or more kindness? What makes that pie get broken up differently? Well, the I maintain, well, first of all, some narcissism, there is a genetic element to that, no doubt. And there's also an element of early rearing, right? Your attachment theories, how your parents related to you. So there is kind of a background. I'm not saying that everyone's equally a narcissist. There are clearly what I call deep narcissists. And I have a kind of a, a kind of an image that I've created mm. where let's say there's a, at the high point, you are completely empathetic. You can get outside of yourself and think completely of another person, be as kind. I can get inside your mind. And at the bottom point, at zero, you're completely 100% absorbed in yourself, right? Most of us are at that kind of 50% line, right? And if we get, if painful things happen and we're upset, we can kind of dip below that and become more self-absorbed. If we're happy and we're in a good mood and we're in a relationship and things are clicking, we can get out of that and rise up to 70, maybe 80%. Some people from very early age are locked into like that 20 or 30 percentage position because they had parents who abandoned them, who didn't give them the proper attention, et cetera, or they had parents who suffocated them. They didn't have the the ability or the space to create a a solid sense of self. So when when we've experienced some kind of painful situation, the first thing is, we retreat inward, right? That's our first instinct. And we want to protect ourselves, right? 
But if you have no sense of self to retreat into, if it's kind of all fragmented and you don't feel like there is anything solid there, you're gonna, your, your natural instinct is to get angry at people, to find fault with them, to attack them, to go into what's called narcissistic rage, et cetera. So some people are at that lower point and other people are higher. In that case, a lot of it has to do with childhood, early childhood. But the key, the point that I make in the book that applies to all of the things that you mentioned, all the laws, is your degree of self-awareness. So if you delude yourself and say, no, I'm the one person on the planet that's not a narcissist. I'm the only person ever created who doesn't have any of these tendencies. You can't correct yourself, right? right. You'll, you'll be at that position, you'll be locked through your whole life, or you'll keep dipping down. Yeah. So the key is, no, I have these tendencies. I'm not a deep narcissist like some of the people we see in our own culture who are like that, right? Okay, but I have these tendencies. I'm aware of them now. Now I can begin to catch them. I can begin to see in a conversation. I'm not really listening to the other person. I'm hearing my own thoughts. I'm absorbed in my own head, right? So you need awareness. Envy is an emotion that nobody wants to admit to because it's a very ugly admission. It means I feel inferior to you, mm -hmm. therefore I envy you, okay? But envy is so natural. We all feel it. I feel it hundred times during the course of the day, I tell people, somebody you know, Ryan Holiday, very well. My it's former so mentee. Yes, okay, thank you. My, <laughs> my former mentee, you know, he's becoming more successful than I ever was. You know, he's outshining the master. And yes, at moments, <laughs> I will feel envy for his youth, for his success, for his family, etc. But I'm aware of it. And therefore, my awareness gives me the power to say, Robert, that envy is an ugly emotion. You don't want to feel it. Let's change it into something else. Mm. So I, I hope I'm answering your question. I, yeah. I think okay. I think it leads to the next good question, which I think is challenging. Uh, how the question is: How do we create awareness of ourselves? And I think it's tricky because first off, people don't even know to to even want awareness. Like, I think people can generalize and say that like, um, yeah, I'm aware. Like, I mean, I went to work and this guy was a jerk and then I came, you know, and like food was dick cold and I don't know, whatever. I'm just making up a story, but I don't think anyone would not, it's almost like being healthy. I feel like everyone could say like, yeah, I want to be healthy, but nobody really knows. How, not everyone knows how to do it. And I feel like awareness is similar in the sense that I think people want awareness, but I don't know if they know how to get it. Well, it's what you said earlier, where we want the easy path. I call it the line of least resistance. We take the line of least resistance. So if we weren't aware that exercise can actually make us feel better and get us healthier, when we go to the gym, we would just do the little, the tiniest little bit of movement and then go home and have a beer and think, wow, we exercised today. But we're aware that you have to do more of it that you have to build up your muscles, that over the period of weeks and months of going to the gym, of lifting weights, of swimming, of running, you're going to build up strength and it's going to get better and better and better, okay? Awareness is a muscle. It's not literally a muscle. It's a mental muscle. Let's just use an image here, right? So if you just go, yeah, I'm aware, okay, enough, story over, it's never going to happen. It's like going to the gym. You have to practice it every day. You have to have it has to become a habit 
All right. So that's the first thing for you to, to get down on your hands and knees and go, I am not aware of myself. Mm. I am deluding myself in most situations. It's a come to Jesus moment. You admit that you are not aware that you're not practicing this. Okay. Now you can go to the next step. And then, and I tell this like a lot in the daily laws, but in all of my books, it's a process. There are baby steps that you go along the way. And the hardest thing for people is to detach themselves from themselves. And that's the main power I'm trying to give you in my books. Mm -hmm. The ability to look at yourself with some distance and detachment and observe yourself in action. So you begin by, let's say tomorrow, we're going to start this process. I heard Robert, I'm going to start it tomorrow. Okay. I want you just one time during the day to catch yourself feeling an emotion, right? Anger, envy, love, excitement, whatever it is. And to step back and just for a couple of minutes to try and analyze that emotion and go, where does it really come from? Is it really just love or excitement or is it maybe something else? Is it maybe a mix of emotions? Is it maybe the opposite? Sometimes when we hate somebody, we actually love them. Weird, but that's how perverse people can be, right? Take that step back and go, what's really going on here? Maybe write it down in a journal. All right, you've taken one step in one day, and now the whole thing will start opening up to you because you'll see, you'll realize in that moment that you're continually reacting to emotions and never analyzing them, and it gets you in trouble. <laughs> you, you, yeah. send that, you send that angry email, and you go the next day, Shh, what the hell did I do? That was so stupid. I can't take it back. How embarrassing. Oh. Day in and day out, you're reacting. I want to give you the power to stop reacting. You go, well, that's right. I was feeling excitement in that moment. I stepped back and I analyzed it. And actually, that excitement was a feeling of envy, a feeling of insecurity. It really isn't what I thought it was. That's interesting. Now that gives me the power to maybe, I don't want you to repress your emotions because that doesn't work. Emotions are very important for us, for our functioning. But awareness of them, aware of where they come from, aware of your own faults, aware of the own patterns in your life that bring you trouble is extremely important. From those small steps, we can build it out. Something larger, like I mentioned, seeing the patterns in your life, which is an extremely powerful, powerful bit of perception. Mm. Because if, you know, if I was fired once for outshining the master, but as I say in my books, for human beings, nothing ever happens once. There's always a pattern. Mm-hmm. If, somebody, if somebody does something kind of rotten to you, and they go, oh, Danica, that wasn't me. I don't know what, something came over me. That's not really who I am. And you go, okay, well, maybe that's true. Uh-uh, that is who they are. You can bet your do- a dollar on that they've done that many, many times before. Nobody ever does anything once. We're habitual creatures. I don't mean never, but usually. Yeah. So I have patterns that outshine the master was a pattern of mine. And if you now can take that little distancing thing and go from my emotions to what are the patterns in my life? Who are the bad people I've gotten into relationships with before, which is all a very common pattern? You suddenly are getting more and more power over yourself. Well, we all are. I can raise my hand. You're suddenly getting more and more power over yourself. So that's, it's a process. It's like going to the gym. It's going to mm. take a couple of years, and it'll bring you peace. It will bring you self-understanding. It will bring you better relationships in life. It'll make your workplace you will have less emotion and less drama, which I think we all of us need. 
What about the relationship between right and wrong? Everyone has been in a scenario where take your job, for instance, where you were fired for, you know, ultimately outshining the boss. It didn't make you wrong. Like you weren't wrong necessarily in doing a great job. You learned from it. You could do, you know, be a little more, um, give a little more credit. You could be a little more humble. But I think there's also additional scenarios that people can think where there's something that's truly done to them and it's wrong. So what about that sort of dynamic of right and wrong and still being able to get to the emotions? Well, it, it all depends on the situation. I mean, um, there is there is evil in this world. There are people who are malevolent and you can't be naive. And a lot of our problems stem from our naivete. We judge mm-hmm. people based on their appearances. And there are toxic narcissists out there. They're very aggressive people. And they don't announce themselves. They don't come into your life saying, hey, Danica, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm a toxic narcissist. How are you? Right? They no, they are it. dressed in, you know, they're the wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. Right. They're masters of disguise for whatever reason. So a lot of what I'm trying to tell you is... The bad people in your life, okay, they're bad. You're not going to get rid of them. They are truly evil. They are wrong. They are not right, right? When they do something to you that's bad, it's not that it's not your fault. I'm never going to say it's your fault. But the ability to recognize them before they get enmeshed in your life gives you the power to avoid them. Oh, yeah. So a common scenario in business, because I do a lot of consulting in business, and believe me, I've been a victim of this myself is you're looking for a a partner for your business or you're looking for an employee to help you. And you hire someone thinking that they're very charming, they flatter you, they're very nice, they have a good resume. And then suddenly, um, several months in, you see that they have a bad character, right? That they're actually wanting to steal the company from you, that they're actually only thinking of themselves, that they're actually going to go on social media and badmouth you left, right, and center. They were feeling envious. And you go, God damn, what have I gotten myself into? This is a nightmare. I better go find Robert to consult with. Well, if you can recognize these people before you get involved, and I say human beings are good at disguising themselves, but they're never perfect. Mm-hmm. So that tar- toxic narcissist that became your partner or your, or your boss or your intimate partner, there were signs. Uh There were signs beforehand. You just weren't paying attention. Mm -hmm. I'm not blaming you for their evil, for their wrongness. I'm blaming you for being naive and not being wary enough and not recognizing the signs. So before you get enmeshed in their world, let's see if you can notice from their body language, from their own past, from how they present themselves, that you might be dealing with one of these types. I don't want to make you paranoid but I want you to be more aware. And then if it's too late, if you're already involved in the relationship and you can't get out for whatever reason, the ability to detach yourself and say, it's their problem. They're actually a miserable person. They're so narcissistic that they have no joy in their life. They can only think of themselves. We're social animals. Our joy comes from connecting to other people. This person has no joy. I'm not going to get wrapped up in the drama that they're trying to create. I'm going to actually feel sorry for them in a way. Sort of distance yourself from them and not blame yourself, but say that, you know, it's it's, it's nothing to do with me. It's their problem. It's their fault. 
the moment you start thinking it's you that's the problem then then you're like then they've won they've they've, they've, they've defeated you so that's how i would deal with dealing with truly evil people is, am i answering your, i'm wondering if i'm answering your question yeah yeah absolutely you are <laughs> okay. and you're giving me more questions with your answer which is okay. always <laughs> Always, always good. I kind of wanted to have this, this debate with Jordan Peterson when I interviewed him about malevolence. And I, it's about a, it's the concept that, you know, you say there are bad people out there and there are people that do wrong. If you point blank, shoot someone in the head and you walk up to their car for no, no apparent reason, like, or nothing provoked, there's a, that's wrong. Right. I really wonder if deep down, no matter how bad someone is, if they actually are just someone with a deep, deep wound, that they feel it's necessary to do something bad so that they can protect themselves, so that they can repeat a pattern that they have, that that was developed from childhood, whether it be anger or rage or abuse or whatever it is, um, to uh, look good to someone else, maybe doing something bad helps them look good to someone else, a group, a gang, who knows. And so I just, it's something I think about a lot. And I'm curious your perspective on that, because in my exploration of human nature is that we get programmed and we have, and we have examples in, in our life proximity that, that really program us in, in really destructive ways. And we're trying to protect ourselves and survive every day. So do you really think that there are truly bad people out there or well, are they just wounded people? It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic question. And if I absolutely knew the answer, I would be a multi-billionaire. I would be able to solve all human problems because it's a, it's a debate that goes on endlessly between neuroscientists and education people and sociologists. Is it genetics? Is there such a thing as a bad seed, which is the word that we used to use, someone who was kind of born that way? Or is it just early rearing? Is it just a wound? And I don't think it's either way. I don't think it's black or white. I think that it, it can be a mix of things. So there was a very famous uh, female psychoanalyst in the 1950s named Melanie Klein. And her thing, which was so brilliant, was she psychoanalyzed infants and toddlers Right. And she determined that there are children who are born who are greedier than others. And she noticed that the way that they would be breastfed, they would be hanging on with their teeth. They would be biting. They would be breastfeeding with such energy that was much more than, than another baby. Now, there's no way that this could have been had anything to do with how they were reared because they were showing this at two months old. Right. It was genetic. She called them the greedy baby right? Some babies were born with a more greedy, aggressive energy. So there is a genetic component, right? But we can't deny that in a lot of cases, there is a deep, deep wound that comes from early attachment. Is, is, it, is there something inherent in human nature that can make us have propensities to evil? And I say, I, talk, I have a chapter in the laws of human nature on the dark side of human nature, and I try and make the argument, like I did in all the other chapters, that we all have a dark side. It is part of our nature, and it comes from a very simple reason, the way that we're reared. When we're children, two, three years old, we don't 
we're a complete person. We're, we, we can be a sweet little angel. And the next moment, we can pull our sister's hair and do all sorts of mean things and beat people up, right? We're not socially conditioned to fit in perfectly. We just have these emotions and we act on them. And then as we get older, we're told, Robert, you can't act like that. You can't pull your sister's hair. You have to be nice and sweet. You have to be nice to your teacher. You have to be a good student, blah, blah, blah. And all those kind of aggressive tendencies that boys and girls, girls equally have, right, get pushed down. No, I have to be a sweet person. No, I have to be angelic. No, I have to fit in. No, I have to say the right things. People are going to judge me if I'm not. And then slowly you develop a dark side that kind of grows inside of you, right, and becomes infestors. And it comes late, out later in life in kind of antisocial behavior. So the strange thing is we're social animals to the core. We can't survive without other people. But on the other hand, we also have these kind of antisocial flaws that can kind of fester inside of us. Mm. So we need to be aware. But the thing is, let's say that someone is deeply wounded. Let's say you're in, you happen to be in a relationship with one of these people. And I maintain, someone pointed out to me that there's a statistic about how many kind of criminal minds are out there in the human population. And they said 5%, which seems a little bit high, but maybe it is, right? Okay, so they're 5% of people who have that genetic component and they have maybe early um, childhood issues. And they are, you know, they have a criminal antisocial mind, but we would now call a sociopath, okay? So if you're involved with them, the worst thing that can happen is you understand them so well that you let your guard down and you don't realize that you need distance from them, right? So they have to have limits to your empathy. You have to protect yourself from people like that. And you can't fall for the idea that you can be the one to change them, right? <laughs> there are some people who can't be reformed. You are not a social worker. You can't necessarily change these people. So the idea, and I talk a lot about this in, in the art of seduction, about the common scenario of the man who's a rake, who's a serial seducer of women, right? Mm -hmm. And he, he's actually kind of cold in his core. He's going to dump you at some point. And the worst thing that happens to women in these scenarios is they go, I'm going to be the one that reforms him. He's got this bad character trait. We've all done he's, it. <laughs> he, he's evil. You know, he's a serial seducer. You know, he can't love. I'm going to teach him how to love. He's going to love me. Uh, it's not going to work. He's got you under his power. People can change. And there are many examples of, of prisoners or criminals who've reformed themselves. And it's an amazing, beautiful story. But it takes a lot of work and it takes like people who help them, you know, very deeply. So you're not as an individual going to be able to do that. But you have to recognize that there are people out there who are kind of born that way. And there's almost nothing you can do about them. What if you have someone in your life and they're necessary? They might be the parent of your child. They might be a, a parent themselves, your parent, a brother, a sister, like uh, maybe Oof. it's a boss even. So yeah. what do you do in a scenario where there's someone like that, that's difficult and, you know, you're not going to change them and you shouldn't try, but you have to deal with them. There are strategies where you kind of lessen them. And I don't mean to say it's impossible to change them. Some people aren't really open to change, but let's say it's a sibling, right? who you're fighting with and you've never gotten along with 
and you have to see it Thanksgiving and Christmas, and there's all this tension between you, and they're causing all kinds of feuds within the family, etc. The worst thing you can do is to take it personally and get angry and, and, and cut yourself off from them and, and be cold to them every time you see them and go, damn that person, I just don't want anything to do with it. Because you're just simply enforcing their own notion, their own wound, that nobody likes them, right? You're making the situation worse because you're automatically looking at them as somebody that has a problem and that they're internalizing that you see them that way. Therefore, they're going to act that way. So try a different strategy at Thanksgiving dinner. And I tell people this, kind of contradicting my last answer, but it's okay for me to contradict myself. So you see them at Thanksgiving, and I, I tell people, try and do this following exercise when you look at them. Instead of your first thought is, oh, I don't like that. I've got to keep away that. They're ugly. I don't like them. Think the opposite. Go, let's just give that person a name, Gary. Gary's a good person. He's a nice person. He was wounded in, in childhood, but he's actually got a kind heart. There's something good about him. Just don't even say it. Just think it. And you'd be surprised how the thinking is communicated to the other person non-verbally, whereas the thought, God damn, I can't stand Gary. He's just crazy. They're picking it up. They're oh, picking yeah. it up, right? Because we feed off nonverbal communication. Yeah. And then you start treating them differently. You start trying to, what I call entering their spirit. You try and reflect and mirror them. They have these certain interests that actually don't interest you at all. They love like gory horror films, which you can't stand. You kind of go out of your way to, to, to sort of say, yeah, I kind of like that film or to enter their world. Because when you have a deep wound like that, what happens is people sense it and they treat you differently and mm. they, they kind of keep you at a distance. And suddenly you develop this crust around you where you don't let anybody in because nobody wants to talk to you really about anything that matters. You want to break that crust down. You want to enter their world, enter their spirit, and begin to make let them relax a little bit around you. So feeling that and going through those motions, you're not going to change this person and make them you know, the ideal that you would want for a sibling. But maybe you can break the ice and maybe some communication can open up and maybe that family dynamic can begin to change. Mm. And there are brilliant family therapists who have operated on this level, you know, who've done some miraculous things with, the, with yeah. the black sheep of the family. That's exactly what I was thinking about is it feels like I'm reading uh, The Body Keeps the Score. So I'm reading about a therapist, great book, therapist perspective as, as he deals with loads of different kinds of trauma. And mm. the most recent story was just about someone going apeshit in the office at first. And it was like, they were looking for a repeat. They were looking for someone to respond to them and probably say, get out. Right. Or I'm not right, going to right. deal with this. And the therapist just sits there, you know, he just sits there and he allows this tantrum to happen. And then there's a trust that develops because you are looking past the actions to the human underneath it. Right. And so it feels like almost like a therapist like approach where you just, you allow them to be, you right. allow them their, their, you allow them to be who they want to be. And you respect that, you know, it's coming from a sad place and you have more empathy as opposed right. to anger with them. Um, right. Yeah. Great book. But I also was thinking about the fact that you were talking about nonverbal. In my opinion, I think this is 
a direction culturally we need to go is to continue to uh, be able to get to ourselves, to awareness, to our feelings and to our intuition. And so I was thinking about, you know, the story of the baby and, you know, being a greedy baby at just, you know, a few months old. But from my researching, especially from Bruce Lipton, that the human subconscious is programmed from, they say, the last trimester of pregnancy on. So it feels to me like there's a possibility and I don't, I don't, I don't hear you arguing. I, I hear you saying you're not sure if there's true malevolence or not. Um, but it seems like there are some, s- supposedly some studies that, that would sort of say people are genetically different, but I wonder if instead of it being sort of a participation in, in, in actions, it's an energetic exchange that creates the monster, the greedy baby you mean you mean the, you mean the baby in the last trimester was picking up something from the mother? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting theory. I've never heard anything about. I don't know how anybody could prove it, but I'm sure there is some yeah. because they've done studies where they um, they the mother plays certain classical music or certain music for the baby, and it in, in you know in the last trimester it has a definite effect on them. So I'm sure there's some some validity to that. Yeah, but. I mean, still, I still would maintain that there's probably a genetic component that yeah. that is underlying it. Even then, yeah. that even even prior to that trimester, there are things that are that are going on that are underneath there that we'll never ever really know. I mean, if you study human nature and psychology, like the people you've referred to that the great book, I'm not on their level, but I've studied it for many years. You develop a bit of humility because humans are so complex complicated. And if you spend one minute analyzing yourself and analyzing the degrees of emotions you can have in three-minute period and how your mind will go from this, that, and the other, you begin to appreciate the incredible complexity of the human being, which is why I'm very skeptical about things like artificial intelligence, because I don't think you can ever replicate the incredible complexity of the human brain and the incredible complexity of our nature, how we can feel things and understand things not through necessarily rational um, appreciation, but through intuition. Mm-hmm. Intuition is an incredible part of our knowledge and our ability to get anything done. You can't probe that into machine. So I don't have the answers about this genetic component or not. I'm, I sort of am humbled by the fact that there's so many mysteries about human nature that I don't think we'll ever understand because we're this marvelous creation. The human brain as I'm discussing in my next book, is the most complex organism in the entire universe. The number of cells, the number of neuronal connections in the brain far surpass the number of, of stars in, in, in the universe. Of, uh, you know, it's just, it's an incredible thing about our brains are just unbelievable. So I don't think I can ever really completely understand it. And I come to the subject with a degree of, I'm trying to understand it, and there's still mysteries that I'll never be able to solve. I think that's part of the human experience that makes it interesting yet frustrating. And so it kind of leads me into asking about this book, because I I think I heard you, it's based on basically the Big Bang, right? And sort of the trajectory after that. And is that, is this correct? And like trying to understand and explore people's limited thinking. Um, Is that, is that right? Is that the book you're alluding to? My new book, what I'm writing right now? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have parts of it in in the Daily Laws in the month of December. Well, basically, it's a book I call it's about the sublime, 
And I have this idea about human nature that I've had for many, many years. And the idea is that I kind of compare it to a circle that human beings naturally live inside of a circle. And that circle is, this is what you're supposed to think in your culture. This is how you're supposed to behave. There are rules, there are conventions. You're not supposed to think these kinds of thoughts. You're supposed to think these other ones. And that circle existed in ancient Egypt. It didn't have the same things that we have, but it still was a limitation. You're not supposed to think this in ancient Egypt. You're supposed to behave this way. It's changed the content, but that physical reality is the same. The moment you place limits for the human being, they're fascinated by what lies beyond. It's part of our nature. We like what's supposedly transgressive. We're not supposed to go there. We want to go there. You've ever had a a two-year-old? You say, no, don't do that. Or a cat, don't go there. That's where they go the moment your back is turned, right? Not to say that cats have the same nature as humans, but they kind of do. Um, Anyway, so I'm saying that what lies outside that circle is what I call the realm of the sublime. And I want people to begin to think outside of that, to expand their minds, to expand their consciousness, to not live in the sort of narrow little world of your smartphone, of what people are telling you how you're supposed to think and feel, but to expand your mind to other possibilities of looking at the world. So I explain in the first chapter about the Big Bang and the cosmos and and the story of the evolution of our universe. And first of all, if you explore it through through physics, it's a lot of science, it's the most insanely amazing, beautiful story that you could ever put together. It's so unlikely the way things ended up becoming the way they are to see how stars evolved, to see how our galaxy evolved, how our solar system, how the sun was born, and then how the earth broke off from this kind of big block of of rock, and that how our earth collided with another planet some, I don't know how many billion, four billion early on in our history, and that collision created the moon. Mm. And, you know, it's it's an unbelievably beautiful story. And it'll make you realize that you're thinking here of your own day-to-day affairs. You're only thinking about Instagram, et cetera. And yet, this, is, this thing's been going on for 13 billion years. It'll blow your mind. It'll expand your thinking. It'll make you appreciate just being alive. It'll make you appreciate that we have a sun, that we have light, that we have water. It'll change your thinking to expand your mind outside this narrow circle that we inhabit. I have each chapter is about that, a chapter about evolution, about how humans evolved, which is an insane, another insane story. I have a chapter about ancient history and how old religions had a different way of looking at the human being that are incredibly interesting and beautiful. I'm writing a chapter now on childhood and how the world of children and their minds are very different from adults. And how it's extremely exciting how you once used to think when you were three years old. You have no access to how you were thinking when you were three because it's so different from how you think now. You're not even aware of it. But you lived in this really surreal, amazing world where your senses were so open. The child's brain is completely very different from the adult brain. And it's kind of fascinating to study. So I go into that and how you can access your childhood more easily as your as an adult. So that's you know, animals, how insane animals are and how their consciousness is actually quite related to our own. 
on and on and on. So that's sort of the book that I'm working on. Like, what are the spinning thoughts that you've had for some time about this idea of how unlikely it is that we're here, how, you know, miraculous the whole experience is, or maybe a better question is, what do you hope to find in writing the book that will then be the message that you hope people get from reading it? Well, I'll tell you, it's it's a weird thing. It's a little bit personal, but I'll go into it. Originally, I intended the book as kind of a therapy for you to kind of get you outside of your yourself mm. because we get so self-absorbed that it makes us, it ter- turns us off from the wonders of our, our world. I know that sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it is an incredibly wondrous world that, that is around us. Mm. And we tend to get, as we get older, we, our circle gets narrower and narrower and narrower. So I thought of it as a book of therapy. But honestly, what happened is um, about three years ago, I had a stroke and um, my life suddenly hit a wall. Um, I was very athletic. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an athlete, but I, was, I swam every, almost every day, mountain biked, hiked, et cetera, et cetera. That was my whole, that was really an, an integral part of who I am. All of that taken away, right? I can't swim anymore. I can't really, I can't hike. I can barely walk, I can walk but it struggles. I have a, a special bike that I use, which is my salvation. But basically, that was taken away from me. So I have to live in my house, in my office, and write a book. And I have no outlets. My outlets used to be walking and thinking. It used to be going in my backyard and observing things. All that kind of stuff. I can't do that. So I have to find other ways of creating my own therapy and healing my own wounds from this injury. And so the book has become that. Mm. So... When it's four o'clock and it's time for me to start writing, which is often when I start, it's like, wow, it's the highest point of my day. I get to get my head out of my, my pity and my worries and all that and get into these subjects and immerse my head in the cosmos, in dinosaurs, in all this incredible history. And it's, it's like therapy for myself. And so a lot of people are in that situation in life, yeah. right? They sure. don't have a lot of money. They're not traveling to exotic locations, they have a job they don't necessarily like. I want to bring this books to the that anybody is going to have that kind of therapeutic effect where you're you may not be trapped by an injury like I am, but you're trapped by something else. Sure. And I want your you can heal some of that through your mind, through how you think. And my I have an idea in the book that your mind either kind of contracts or expands to what you think about. Right? You control that. If you're only thinking about your Instagram account or something like that, that mind will narrow and narrow and narrow. But if you're thinking about all these other issues that I'm talking about, about evolution, about what it means to be human, about our relationship to animals, about nature, about the brain itself, your mind is expanding and it's, it'll have, a, I hope, a therapeutic impact on you. I don't know why I feel like I want to ask you this, and it might be off base, but it just something just came to mind and there's a lot of conversation around it. And I'm curious if this is something that you've done or thought about and maybe the power of it is plant medicine. I mean, oh, psilocybin or, you know, just based on the fact that, you know, it takes you to another place. I'm completely open to that. Um, I mean, when I was in college, you know, and I went to college, not college, not far from where you, you, I went in Wisconsin. I went to UW, 
Mm. Um, I was heavily into drugs. That's Madison, uh, right? Madison, yeah. Party town, party yeah. school. I think it was like number one party school many years in a row. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm older. It's, this was like in the in the late seventies that I was there. So you so started. It was also, it. I started. <laughs> Yeah, right. I don't think I can take credit for what goes on on State Street in Madison, but <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll try. Um, I didn't start it, but there was also a lot of like political activism. It was kind of you know a, a left wing town as Madison still sort of is. It's just it's beautiful. I love Madison. Coming yeah. from California, yep. I fell in love with it. I lo- it's beautiful, and I loved cross country skiing to class, on and on and on. But. Um, so I did LSD, I did mushrooms, I did peyote, which is what mescaline comes from. I did a lot of pot, I did hash, you name it, I took it, right? I even did shoe polish at one point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you did start it. <laughs> yeah. I don't recommend, I should take that back, I don't recommend that for anyone. Um, anyway, uh, and it's a, it's a very important part of, of human nature because the history of people taking plant substances goes back thousands of years. Even animals are known to do that. There's definitely an important role in that. I don't know at my advanced age now, since I passed the age of 60, how well I can handle LSD with the damage I had to my brain mm. that I've had already. You know, Because when you have a stroke, oxygen is cut from your brain for several minutes, and right. that's what causes the damage. So I have lasting brain damage. Mm. And um, it's fortunate that I can write a book, although we'll see what, how the book comes out. But um, I don't know if I should be mixing, taking a risk with that. And Ryan was saying, no, Robert, don't do it. Part of me does want to do it. Part of me at least wants to take something safe like mushrooms. I'm not going to do ayahuasca because mm-hmm. I'm a little bit worried about that. You know, I think I would kind of something... Some some demon would be dredged up that I would never be able. I'd never <laughs> be able UW to get UW days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Robert, this is why you're here. Yeah. You're from Beloit. I am. I was born in Beloit, Wisconsin, and I grew up just <laughs> over the border in Roscoe, Illinois. Oh, oh, did you go to Madison when you were younger? I actually didn't go to college at all. I actually didn't even graduate no. high school. I moved. Did you to even a- visit? Did you even oh, yeah, it? yeah, definitely been to Madison. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I've been there quite a few times. Um, yeah, it's a really cool town. Um, but you, you went to England, you said? I did. When I was 16, I moved to England for racing. So oh, that was kind wow. of my college. Um, I, oh, yeah, I, left, well, I left halfway through junior year and got my GED. And it's like I remember my boss at the my first real racing boss, Bobby Ray Hall's his name, um, who won the Indy uh-huh. 500. And, and he said, he said this statement, the youth is wasted on the young. And I, it's never, I've never forgotten that because <laughs> now I like, I mean, if you saw like all of my notes and my research and I mean, I just consume information willingly and aggressively and um, not only that, but of course, physically and function wise, there's so much, so much malleability and stamina when you're young yeah. and the youth is wasted on the young because now I find myself wanting to learn a whole bunch of stuff. And 
you know, when you're a teenager or a kid and you have to sit in the same spot in class on the rug or you, ha- you have to yeah. raise your hand to go to the bathroom or you're learning about something stupid and, so- and <laughs> you know, math that you'll never use in your life. It's like this yeah. is your exploration time and you get stuck yeah. in a room. So, um, yeah, I left and I moved to England and started racing or well, but, I didn't they, start racing. I went to cars. But they drive on the other side of the road. Yeah, I did. How was that? I, I lived fun. in London. I lived in London, and I was I was an intern at a television company. Oh. And they once tried to get me to drive their car in London. I couldn't do it. It was too <laughs> nerve wracking. I thought I was hitting the curb every. I was hitting past pe- pedestrians in the curb. London is manage? not a place to start off. Um, How did was, you manage? I mean, I drove as soon as I could, which was seventeen. I think is the driving age okay, over there. Okay. Okay. I had I drove as soon as I could, which wasn't when I first got there. And um, the race cars, though, are not like that. So the the race cars I drove were were single seaters. So it's just one little oh, cockpit, okay, and the shifter okay. was with the right hand, and so that was oh, all okay. very normal. But the but okay. the car uh, actually, yeah, the car would have been. Yeah. Left hand shifting, sitting on the right side. And it just came naturally. You know, like you said, yeah. kids pick up tons of stuff. I mean, I'm a teenager and you just do it. And, um, wow. you know, I also, also I was, a, I'm a race car driver, so, um, it came pretty naturally to drive for me, but London's not the place that you want to go test the waters driving a car. No, 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 no. Always look forward because there's so much happening around you that if you take a second to look in the rearview mirror, you're going to hit something because something's happening. I- I know. Well, I, I didn't. I only drove once, and that was it. And then they just put me on a motorbike to, to do the deliveries, and that was fun. That was fun. Oh Nearly God. got killed a dozen times, but I enjoyed that. Yeah, I was gonna say a bike sounds far more dangerous. There's not a lot protecting <laughs> you there. <laughs> Talking about your stroke and the change of life that you've had, and I'm sure that oh, I just can't imagine. Actually, I can't empathize. I don't. I don't know how that would be, but I can under. I can fathom that it's frustrating, sad. Um, what is your relationship with Amora Fati, meaning the love uh, of fate, right? And so is this yeah. something, does it, do you, are you feel, do you feel really tested with that very concept? That, that was the ultimate test because my first reaction was to hate fate, right? I'm trying hate. to think of what that would be. That would be Odi Fati, I think. Um, Odium Fati, you know, just like, damn, why me? My whole life, you know, and probably what caused my stroke was an inadvertent bee sting in my neck, you know, that um, created a big flare up and cholesterol and all this stuff. And the, and the uh, blood clot occurred right where the beast hit me. If I had walked five minutes earlier oh. or that, that bee had missed me, wouldn't happen, you know? How do you deal with something like that, right? So, course initially there was no amor fati but i don't <laughs> want to be a hypocrite and i and i and i take seriously my own ideas and i want to live it and slowly it became clear to me that this is my reality and maybe it did happen for a reason because amor fati is even though things maybe don't happen for a reason it's best to kind of think of them that way right it's easier to process better so, than the latter exactly so when the stroke happened, I was driving here in Los Angeles, and my wife was on the other was a passenger. She saw and she forced me off the road immediately. Called nine one one, and I was unconscious. 
I could easily have been driving by myself like I often am or swimming or something. I'd be dead right now or I'd have severe brain damage. And the most important thing in my life is thinking. So fortunately, my left side of my body was rendered paralyzed, but my brain was is intact. I can write another book. I, I can love fate for that. I can love the fact that I'm alive. I had a slight near-death experience, slight in that I had some, you know, some visions and stuff. I do it want is, to hear about that. Okay. Well, it, you know, and that kind of gave me an intense um, appreciation of what it means to be alive, right? Something we completely take for granted. When you feel like I felt like my body was being drained of life, that so the, what happened in the near-death experience was I had this sensation that my bones were kind of melting, that I was losing life through my skeleton, through my bones, that it was all coming out of me. And my skeleton, my bones were getting softer and softer and softer. And then, um, and then I had this idea, and, and still to this day, less now because it's three years now, I still have that sensation of something a little bit soft, in my in my bones, I, I can't really explain it. And I had a vision while I was in my coma of kind of being above ground and looking down and seeing my mother and my wife talking. And then I was kind of telling myself, "It's all right. Everything's fine. They're okay. The world goes on. It's okay. You know, it's okay to leave this world." And so, um, you know, other people have much stronger near death experiences, probably because my coma wasn't as deep and long as other people's, but it makes you think about life in a whole different way. I don't think of, 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 of the world the way I did beforehand or about people who've never had it think. So it's a special thing that happened. It's a mark of Cain. It's like, it distinguishes me. I'm one of the few people who kind of felt death. There are people around the world. It was a privilege I mean, not really, but it's how I think about it. You know, it kind of something gives me access to a way of thinking. It's going to help me write my new book because I'm not writing about the sublime as if it's an intellectual exercise. I lived it. I lived that. I, I felt death. I felt the breath of it on me. So I'm not just writing about it in this kind of intellectual way. It's visceral. It's inside of me. So that's how I go through Amor Fati. I find the things... I can glean from that experience that are immensely positive. And there are other ones, such as appreciating life itself, such as, you know, forcing me to make this the one project that's going to save my brain and make a, a really great book to help other people who feel the same way, you know, on and on. So that's how I've been able to activate more fati in, in kind of bad circumstances. That you changed your perception. And you trained yourself to change your perception, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is um, you realize, so I'm a kind of a, a type A person. I always was a, I have an injury. I hurt my back. I'm going to push through. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to swim my way out of this. Mm. You can't do that with a stroke. You know, you can't, no amount, I do a lot of therapy, but no amount of exercise is going to bring your left leg back to where it was. You have to be patient. So I've had to develop. I've seen flaws in myself to the pre-stroke person. And now I'm learning that I have to become someone who's much more patient and much more forgiving of my body and who I am and not so be hard on myself. 
So it's taught me a lot of things about my own limitations and my own kind of flaws. What do you think as far as coming into this? Well, I don't know. Maybe the first question is, do you believe in reincarnation? Because it's going to, my question is going to lead into incarnating and making choices before you come in. So maybe the first question is, do you even believe in that? Well, I'm kind of a, a hardcore, practical, realistic person, you know, um, uh, and uh, so I, 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 I don't, I've never, I don't necessarily don't believe in it, but it's never been part of my experience. Mm -hmm. I've never, I have, I can tell you one thing that is weird. So I'm not close to the idea, but um, my major in, in college at Madison was classics, ancient Greek and Latin. Mm. And I had this connection to ancient Greece, which was mm. uncanny. Mm. Like I could pick up the language faster than other people. And to this day, I have this sort of intuition about how they thought, you know, like I'll be writing about Athena in one of my chapters and I'm not doing the research. I'm just writing off the top of my head. And then I go and do the research and I realize you were right. That was exactly the truth. I had this weird connection to ancient Greece, where I kind of have an intuitive connection to it. Who knows where that comes from? It's weird. That's very interesting. It feels, it feels uncanny to me. I've never had the feeling that I was Alexander the Great incarnated or anything like that. I wish. But um, so I'm not close to the idea. There's something weird about those kind of feelings. And there's something weird about the past, somebody who studies a lot of history and understands that we are products of generations that precede us. And often I have the feeling and the thought, because um, I also have like very powerful connections to certain periods of history. Mm. So, for instance, don't ask me why, but 17th century France seems to be a period that I connect to very deeply. Wow. Was I walking around in a powdered wig, you know, on, on stilts, you know, you know, wearing strange costumes? Maybe I was. Yeah. Um, but I, because I read so much history, I believe that we are products of the past and it lives inside of us. So what happened 300 years ago is living inside of me right now. So I'm not close to the idea. I just, and maybe as I get older, I'll have some kind of epiphany about it. And maybe I will come to that opinion. Like I'm agnostic with it. I haven't closed my mind. I'm open to it, but I, I'm not, I'm not yet a believer. Okay. That's fair. I think that's still, I think that's still good enough to ask the question. Um, okay. Thank you. And thank you. And sharing for that. That's, mm -hmm. I, I, I agree. There are certain aspects and times and cultures that resonate with me deeply too. So you're not alone and you also aren't alone in your reaction and how you're like, don't ask me how, I don't know. Like it feels silly because there's literally no obvious connection. And so it sounds kind of just like a, this deep imagination um, and maybe some some bullshit, but it also, <laughs> but it also feels kind of true. And so, so what were the periods in history that you had a connection to? Um, Egyptian, um, oh. and Mayan, uh, ah, very exciting. Viking. Wow. Those are three what... excellent, excellent choices. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, yeah, I'm not going to give you my self-inflated narcissistic perspective on what I think I was in those times. Um, but I have deep connection to those. And I went to Egypt uh, last year at the beginning of the year, finally. Oh, but it's one God. of those ironic places that I wanted to go from like my late teens for no yeah. reason. Like there's no, yeah. no good reason. Um, so I felt very connected to that. And in fact, I, I leave on Saturday for Mexico again. Where are you going in Mexico? Yucatan? I'm going, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm, I've, gone, I've gone to Tulum many times. Me too, yeah. What do you think? Oh, I love Tulum. It's, it's a little bit weird now, I hear there's yeah. been crime and everything. But there's, there's a hotel, I can't remember, that we stay at at the, at the end of the beach. It's absolutely wonderful. Be Tulum, um, Nomade. Yeah, be Tulum, be Tulum, be Tulum. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the first place I ever stayed there. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. oh, Tulum's wonderful. I'm so jealous. Well, have you been to the Maya, to the, to the ruins there, the... Um, at Tulum, the so ancient I, city of Tulum. I did not go, I, I, ironically, in all like six times that I've been, I haven't. I've been to the Koba. And then wow. this trip is actually a retreat trip with Nassim Haramin, who's a scientist. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. we're going to Chichen Itza and uh -huh. um, a couple other places, as well as like a bunch of, bunch of lectures on quantum physics, which is another uh -huh. passion of mine is the curiosity oh about human, you know, the nature of reality. Um, but we're staying in, I think, Playa de Carmen this time. It's just a little further north. But um, but I, I feel very connected to that culture for some reason. And I and I don't know why either. Um, and then Viking, I feel like I was literally on the front of a boat, like telling the guys what to do. <laughs> I was in, have you ever been to Norway? No. Oh, Oslo. Um, they have a Viking museum there. I'm Norwegian. I'm, I'm, my mom's 100% Norwegian. I'm half well, Norwegian. You're, well, you're from Wisconsin. What would one expect? They have a, a Viking museum in Oslo. You have to go. I mean, it's, it's, your, it's your blood. It's your heritage. Um, and they have like ships and, 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 and all kinds of other stuff. Oh, the ships are so beautiful. They're like incredible works of art, you know? Um, okay. So the, the question being... Oh, now yes. that we've covered that maybe there's some sort of intuition on other okay. sort of life cycles is that there's another theory that we choose our life. We choose our parents. We choose our challenges. We choose these Whoa. things. We're sort of like also like a evolutionary soul, right? So um, right. we're continuing to pick up where we left off in these cycles of life. And we, we, we come to learn the lessons and expand and that source energy itself is this fractioned off energy that wants to know itself. And so it's doing that through all of us and every other thing in the universe to know wow. itself. And so, and to expand, right? And so it's expansion and learning. So right. what other better way to learn than to come in to a life again and choose the challenge, choose things that are going to create growth. And so I'm just curious if you, what, you know, does how that falls into your you know, experience now, and do you feel like that resonates? And 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 do you feel like that you've ultimately, do you feel like you're better for the experience of having a stroke or not? Well, I, I am better. I mean, um, you know, who knows what would have happened if I hadn't had one, because I was heading down to the path, I'd probably be dead by now. So there's that wow. way of looking. Why? Yeah. Because I worked so hard when I finished the laws of human nature. My stroke occurred three months later. I had 
driven myself to the near death. I was so exhausted and mm -hmm. so uh, stressed. I just destroyed my body, literally shredded to pieces by thinking and working too hard. So I was headed down a wrong path and life was kind of teaching me a different way to go. But if, you know, there are ways of looking at this question to kind of give it a more a wider perspective. I love that. Is that is if, if you look at the history of the universe, and I'm, I'm a, a neophyte in this, I'm not a physicist, and you're going to have some very interesting discussions down in the Yucatan about this. But if you study, um, starting with the Big Bang, and this is my first chapter, I kind of take you on a journey through everything leading to the present moment in our cosmos. Amazing. If you study the Big Bang itself, and then um, how stars kind of, the first star came to being in, in this universe of incredible heat, right? Because the Big Bang generated insane amounts of heat and was expanding at this rapid pace. Okay. The first star that came and what it came out of, and then it exploded and that there was the first star and that how that star exploded and created other stars and then how galaxies were formed, et cetera, leading up to our sun and then to planet Earth being exactly the right distance from the sun for life to evolve and water arriving here probably from comets and asteroids, right? And certain chemicals um, arriving and minerals arriving from outer space that gave the, the, the potential for life on Earth and how it started, life started like 3 billion some years ago and was an experiment and it could have easily not continued. It almost mm -hmm. ended. And then on and on and on through what they call bottlenecks of evolution where if this hadn't happened, if this had moved one direction this way, um, vertebrates wouldn't have evolved. Multicellular creatures wouldn't have evolved. Mm. If that comet hadn't hit Earth in, in the Yucatan, dinosaurs would still be roaming the planet. If you stretch that all the way to humans, you begin to have this weird sensation that it almost seems like it was meant to happen for human beings to evolve, for consciousness to evolve, so that we could piece together this entire story. Mm -hmm. I mean, the piecing together of that story is one of the greatest things ever. It, I often lose faith in humanity for various reasons. But when I look at what people have been able to do in things like physics, to understand like the Big Bang itself, it gives you the feeling that maybe it happened for a reason, that this was the, what it was all heading towards was the mm -hmm. creation of consciousness. Maybe there's the same, obviously there probably is on other planets, and they could say the same thing, but that it gives you a sense that maybe it was meant to happen that way because it's so weird. It's so unlikely yeah. that that asteroid hit planet Earth 65 billion years ago, or never 67 billion years ago, and wiped out the dinosaurs and created the space for mammals to evolve. It's so unlikely that, you know, how could that have been? Maybe there is something behind it. Yeah, I think that I think that answers it in a beautiful way that is uh, hopeful. I guess it makes me follow up with one more question in this sort sure. of outer space realm. Okay. <laughs> I is, love outer space questions. <laughs> good. Me too. Uh, the assistance or intervention of extraterrestrial in our existence as humans, in your research of the planet itself and evolution and then humans 
Do you feel like that there has been intervention or do you feel like they were part of the reason why we made it? I don't know. Once again, I'm agnostic. I remember I had a brother-in-law years ago who thought that he, that there were extraterrestrials that had intermingled and that he was descended from them, you know, and he was uh, uh, an intellect. He was like a professor. So, and I thought, wow, that's an interesting thought. Um, And then if you read about the Dogons in Africa, they're uh, an amazing story uh, because they have drawings in their caves and cetera, um, petroglyphs that seem there seem to be very accurate depictions of something coming from outer space, right? And it's very uncanny, their knowledge of the universe. They almost, I have a book called, the, I think it's called The Science of the Dogons. I don't remember which I can send you the link later on, yeah. where, um, they have theories about the origin of the universe that are very uncannily similar to the Big Bang. They had ideas about energy and about um, quantum physics. I forget which, which idea that was just remarkably prescient and ahead of their time. Mm. Where did that come from? Mm. I don't know. But there's another theory because um, I am going into the alien idea, obviously, from my book, which is that because life was so unlikely to begin on planet earth that we had to go through hundreds of these little bottlenecks to arrive at this particular moment in time. Right. And that it is by a fluke that Neanderthals didn't survive instead of homo sapiens, et cetera. What would that look like? Et cetera. There's all these other kind of things. So we had to go through all of these weird little hoops to get to where we are now. And the odds against it are so huge. It's possible that it never, that those, there's nothing ever like that in, in all the universe. There are people who believe that life is so unlikely the way it came about that it's possible like planets like Mars, where they maybe had life originally, like here there was water. And then because of that one little thing that went wrong, like it could have here, the planet completely dried out and became a frozen planet or Venus became a completely hot planet and life was destroyed, that that is the more likely scenario throughout the universe. Hmm. And the other thing is to travel immense distances like light years to get from outer space to planet Earth requires very lengthy periods of time. So you were talking about people who have to be living thousands of years to be able to reach the end of their journey unless they had developed a form of speed that is beyond our comprehension. So if there was alien life, Mm -hmm. it's probably silicon. It's probably robotic life. Sure, sure. They created robots to travel thousands of years and arrive at planet Earth and mix with the Dogons and teach them this or that or the other. That's a possibility. But the other thing is, maybe it never happened and maybe we're alone you know, which is a scary thought. Um, and, and, and it makes it even scarier if we're going to mess it all up and destroy our planet, the one, the one experiment in the universe. People argue geophysicists, astrophysicists go back and forth on this, and they no one, I don't know if they'll ever solve it, but some believe that it's highly unlikely that there wouldn't be conscious life in the universe, and others believe that it's highly unlikely that there would be. So I'm not committing myself. I know that seems kind of cowardly. But um, moments, I feel like there has to be something out there. There has to be some kind of 
extraterrestrial life form. But the scientist in me wonders, is that even really possible given all that I've been learning? So yeah. it's not a very satisfactory answer. I'm sorry, Monica. I think it's, but I think that part of your, part of your gift is this exploration. And yeah. also, you know, you're obviously highly intellectual. And so, you know, it takes some research before you commit to something. Cause that's part of, <laughs> that's part of intellect is, yeah. is doing your research and, you know, the, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm asking about what you're writing about on some level. Maybe you won't write about aliens. Maybe you won't write about <laughs> extraterrestrial intervention, but it's in that vein. And this is where you're going right now. Like you're in yeah, this yeah, yeah. phase. So it's just kind of exploratory and I'm just kind of poking and having fun and, and, and asking for your perspectives on some well, wide, wide ideas. Well, world is so weird and so mysterious. It's so far beyond our knowledge that it's extremely possible that what you're talking about has happened. So I never like to close my mind to these possibilities because our minds are limited. Human brain is limited. And there are things that exist that we're never going to be aware of, like what's beyond the edge of our universe. This is a thought that the devils, physicists and philosophers, you know, well, what was there before the Big Bang? Try and think about that one. <laughs> I, these are the things that plagued me when I was a kid that made me know that I was curious oh. about the universe because yeah. I would think to myself as I looked up at the stars as a kid and I would go, it goes for infinity. And what's at the end of infinity? There's not, it's, it's not, there's, there's gotta be, but there's gotta be an end. And if there's an end, what does it look like? And then, yeah. So, you know, it's kind <laughs> of like concepts and ideas and exploring them. We continue to yeah. unpack and unravel. And at the rate that, you know, we as humans are expanding, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson said that, you know, is a circle of information. And every time you ask a question outside the circle, the entire circle gets bigger. So there's infinitely right. more questions, which right, is right. ironically kind of the universe. It is expanding right. at an accelerated rate. So like, it seems as though it's almost similar in nature. We live in a fractal universe and it's very interesting. That's for sure. And I love exploring these, uh, these ideas with you. So and do I, I I had a lot of fun today. Thank you. For Me too. Me too. I had a very good, I had a great time. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.